Thanks for inviting me, CCSE. My name is Jason Park, and it's a joy for me to be able to bring you God's Word. Um, one thing that I um, just want to share is that my family and I are big fans of CCSC, especially during the pandemic. Uh, whenever I've had a um, sabbatical or um, had time off from my pulpit, uh, the place we would usually worship online is CCSC. Now, CCSC does a great job with everything, but we especially want to appreciate uh, their children's program. Our, our daughters absolutely love it. Uh, we find it to be creative, excellent, and gospel-centered. And so I just want to thank the people involved and the volunteers involved. Um, I wish I could have been there to see some of you, but unfortunately we're here. But I'm thankful through the gift of technology that I could still bring you God's Word. Um, what we're doing is we're, um, today, we're, Harold, um, Pastor Harold asked me to preach on um, the most the most controversial topic I could think about. And, and while I don't know if this is the most controversial, something that's been really on my mind is how do we, um, um, as a church, acknowledge the harm that we have done um, and, and people have suffered within our churches? And, and how do we um, think about that as a church? What would I want to say to people who have been harmed, who I have um, talked to? And this is um, a passage that comes to mind, um, and, and this is um, the conversion story of Saul. Saul would later on become Paul, but let me read for us in Acts 9, 1 through 19. Uh, let me read for us God's word and pray, and we'll get started. Um, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! And he said, Here I am, Lord! And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hand on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from, uh, heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and king and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hand on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you have came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. 
Let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for this time where we could come gather. We come and pray for your blessing, um, especially as we think about um, such tender topics. Um, for, for some, maybe deeply personal topics. Um, and, and Lord, we come and pray that by your Spirit you would minister to us, that you'd speak to us, um, and that we would be drawn to Christ yet again. We pray for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, the reason I chose this passage about um, Saul is it's very interesting. Um, Saul was going to destroy the church, um, not because Saul thought of himself as evil. Um, in fact, Saul considered himself very pious, very righteous, very upright, and it's out of that uprightness, out of that righteousness, that he came to the conclusion that the church was harmful and evil and wanted to destroy it. By this point, Saul was familiar with the gospel message. Saul had listened in a few meetings. Um, Saul was involved with the death of Stephen. And Saul didn't view himself as a terrorist going to destroy innocent people. I think it was more the other way around. He saw that the church was harmful and that it wasn't good. A hundred years ago, um, people say, uh, theologians say that um, the main question that people had towards Christianity was, is Christianity true? And a hundred years ago, if you saw uh, various writings, you would notice that questions were always about the truthfulness of Jesus, the virgin birth, miracles of Jesus, if these things could be true. Um, and yet today, the question has changed. Um, today, most uh, theologians and sociologists notice a shift that before people assess the truthfulness of Christianity, there must be a question that's answered first, and it's, is Christianity good? Is it beautiful? Is it helpful? And part of that question that we want to look at is a place of the church, because many today even within the Christian circles, within our context, are struggling with this question about the goodness of the church. Um, one of the more popular podcasts that some of you might be following, and I would commend, is A Rise and Fall of Mars Hill by Mike Cosper out of Christianity Today. It's a story of a wildly successful church on the surface, and yet Behind the scenes, it becomes clear that there was a toxic culture of abuse. It's well worth listening, not as a gossip piece for us to sort of hear about failure and, and some sort of gossip heartedness, but as a point of reflection. Um, I, I pastor a smaller church, and, and still I, I would say that there are things for me to reflect on about where we are as a church and about um, some people who have been harmed. Um, within our churches. We look at websites like the Roy Report and maybe certain Instagram pages out there and it becomes very clear um, that many have been harmed and suffered uh, within our church and, and I think that for some of you um, may, there, there's degrees of harm um, but I'd venture to say that all of us have felt disappointed. All, all of us have felt um, rubbed the wrong way um, all of us have been hurt, sinned against within the church. And so how do we process these things as Christians? What are we to do? And, and during this short time, I want to just offer us from this passage three principles. And I offer these as broad principles. 
And I, you sort of could think of it as a tripod where I think that we need to keep these principles always in mind whenever we're processing how do we handle a given situation. And the three principles that I just want to go through quickly is one, acknowledging injustice, two, restorative forgiveness, and third, to make it personal. So first, let's look at acknowledging injustice. When Jesus approaches Saul, notice what Jesus says to Saul. He says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's very clear that Saul up to this point was only persecuting the church, but that is the connection that Jesus is making. Jesus wants the harm that Saul has done to sink in deeply for Saul. And to help this to help Saul understand this, notice what happens. Saul is blind, and for three days he's neither eating nor drinking. Now, why is that significant? Most scholars look at this passage and say, during those three days, Saul is probably doing a lot of these things, but undoubtedly, one of the things he is doing is repenting for the harm he has caused to the church. That he is thinking of these words of Jesus that they're not only sins against the people of God, but sins against Christ himself. And Saul is repenting and for three days really getting a grip of the weight of the harm that he has caused. We could just pause right here and apply this simple truth in a variety of ways. Jesus acknowledges the harm done by Paul. Jesus does not minimize the harm Saul did. Later on in verse 13, Ananias would rightly say what Saul did was wicked and evil. And Jesus doesn't correct Ananias at all. In other words, Jesus agrees. And here we see that Jesus doesn't merely empathize with those who are harmed. Jesus says to Saul, I want you to know something, Saul, that when you harmed and sinned against one of my disciples, it is a sin against my body. It is a sin against me. It was to persecute me. He's acknowledging the harm done. For brothers and sisters who have been hurt within the church, spiritually abused, sinned against, um, not only have you been sinned against, but we could even go further than that. Those sins are not only offensive to you, as they should be, but Christ says something else. They are sins against him, that they are evil and heinous sins against the very body of Christ. And we as a church need to acknowledge um, the ways that sometimes we have sinned against and harmed the people and within the body of Christ. Now, I know that makes maybe some of you feel uneasy. Um, how is it that a pastor says this? And yet, in an age of identity politics, um, we're in a culture where we refuse to do any wrongdoing. If you're a Republican, then Republicans can do no wrong. If you're a Democrat, then Democrats can do no wrong. And if you admit wrong, then you're sort of betraying your own party. And I think it's for easy for us as Christians to adopt that attitude that to speak poorly about the church, to admit any failings or sins, is a betrayal against the church. But let's think about that through the Bible. The Apostle Paul, Saul would become Paul, 
would later address the ugliness within the church time and time again through the scriptures. Paul never swept anything under the rug. Paul brought it up. Paul acknowledged injustice within the church. He would write about favoritism within the church and then address it. He would acknowledge nationalism and racism within the church, Galatians, and he would acknowledge and deal with it. He would talk about people sleeping with prostitutes within the church, scandalous, and he would then deal with it. Paul time and time acknowledges when the church fails. In the same way, in the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ himself rebukes the church for sexual immorality. He rebukes the church for idolatry. He rebukes the church for its obsession with materialism and riches. He rebuked the church for no longer loving Jesus. And the church is, yes, the very body of Christ that Christ loves. And at the same time, Jesus here is rebuking the church. Maybe we need to reframe our thinking deculturalize it. Let's put it, let me put it this way. In Saul chapter 9 goes, um, Saul in chapter 9 goes to destroy the church because he hates the church. Saul becomes Paul. So why does Paul later on deal with, call out, and tackle the ugliness within the church? It isn't because he hates the church. It's because he loves the church. He wants the church to grow. That's the motivation of Jesus. Jesus calls out these sins of these congregations because he loves them and desires them to mature and grow. For those of us who are parents, isn't it the same thing for us? When we are parenting our children, What's one of the things that we ask after they harm others? The one thing that we ask them is, do you know what you did was wrong? We want them to get the weight of what they've done, the harm they've caused. We want them to grow in empathy. We want them to be good and just. And when they harm someone badly, we want them to grieve. They should grieve. That's proper. Um, ultimately, we do that because we love our children and we want them to mature. So what is the goal of the church? What does maturity look like? Is it to become as big as possible? Surely is not. The goal is Christ-likeness. The goal for us individually and also collectively is that we would be Christ-like in our character and that we would be Christ-like in the culture of our churches. When someone could show us from the scriptures, from the scriptures, ways we have caused harm, we must take time to listen, we must grieve and repent, we must acknowledge and strive to grow in Christ's likeness. This isn't to destroy the church, friends. This process is painful, but make no mistake, this is the way that we grow. That's sort of the first tripod. Secondly, we see restorative forgiveness. Not only does Jesus confront Saul, but notice Jesus spends most of his time actually not speaking to Saul, but to Ananias. Jesus confronts Ananias in a vision and says, go and heal Saul. And, and Ananias sort of pushes back to Jesus and says, Jesus, many people have say, said, this person's done evil to your saints. 
And yet Jesus sends Ananias. Now the question for us is, why does Jesus send Ananias at all? Couldn't Jesus have simply cured Saul? I mean, he blinded Saul. So why use Ananias at all? What was the purpose of that? To answer that question, we see some interesting details when Ananias confronts Saul. First, notice what he says to Saul. He calls him Brother Saul, though they've never met. Though Saul's uh, reputation preceded him, that he would call him brother. John Stott said that those are the, some of the sweetest words of Scripture. That though it's their first meeting, and though Saul has failed remarkably and caused great harm, that Ananias would call him brother. Secondly, notice another detail that Ananias lays hands on Saul when he prays. Now, if you've ever prayed for someone, when you lay your hands on them, that is a mark of affection, a mark of love, and a mark of tenderness. And so what this shows, and the reason this interaction had to occur, was that Saul understood that not only was he forgiven and accepted and loved by Christ, but Saul was forgiven, accepted, and loved by the church, the very church he was trying to destroy, the very church he did persecute. And though, and, and it's through the church, the work of the church, that Saul was healed. Saul knew that he needed the church from this point on, that God uses the church for his purposes. I'm drawing from this passage, and the second tripod is something that's remarkably scandalous now in our culture. It's so scandalous that in some circles it's almost like a vice. And what I'm speaking about is a need for restorative forgiveness. The church is a place where we should acknowledge harm, we should acknowledge what's been done, and secondly, a place where we need to be a place of restorative forgiveness. Um, what does it mean to have the power of Christ? Um, Diane Langberg, who is an expert on spiritual and emotional abuse, and I'd highly recommend her book for all of us to read, um, but especially for those of you who in the past maybe have gone through something that is triggering, and maybe this point is triggering. Um, you know, I just want to commend the book Redeeming Power to you. And she asks a question in the last chapters of the book. What does the power of Christ look like? Because abuse is always about power. And she concludes that Jesus used power not to rule, but to influence, to invite, to welcome, and to transform. How do we understand Jesus' power in the life of the church? We see it right over here with Jesus talking to Ananias and Jesus talking to Saul. Jesus welcomes, invites, and transforms this person. This is different from how our culture uses power, especially today. And we could see over here now that Jesus avoids two errors that we make in our culture that are very prevalent. First, notice what Jesus isn't. Jesus isn't a victim blamer. Jesus doesn't deny harm. He doesn't minimize evil. He doesn't say, well, that's a problem with woke culture. That's a problem with the Me Too culture. That's a problem with the BLM movement. 
Jesus is not dismissive of evil ever. And secondly, though, Jesus is not part of the cancel culture. If one person should have been canceled in the book of Acts, it should have been Saul. The church is not about cancel culture. The community, this community, is the only place where when you come and repent, you cannot be canceled, no matter what you've done in the past. That when someone repents and turns to Jesus, Jesus has never canceled anyone. Rather, Jesus uses his power here to invite Saul, welcome Saul, and transform him. In the same way, the church today, the body of Christ, exists to influence, invite, and welcome to transform. This means that all those in Christ, that we are called to this scandalous forgiveness. Now, I know that it's there. It, it, I know, and I want to confess that this is where I struggle personally. That when people are harmed by the church, I just want to write people off. I want to write church leaders off, and I want to cancel pastors. And yet, over here, uh, what other option is there? What other option is there if we don't choose to forgive? <laughs> If we don't choose to forgive, the only other option that I see is that we will become bitter. And St. Augustine describes bitterness as the poison that we drink, hoping that others die. Friends, many people drink this poison. And forgiveness is not easy. It is always scandalous when it counts. Now, and let me just put some other caveats. If I steal money from my church and I get caught, and if I repent, I should be forgiven, but maybe I shouldn't be a pastor anymore. And, and so that doesn't always mean restoration to certain offices, but the point is this, in our hearts, when we think about individuals in the church, in our hearts, are our hearts moving towards bitterness, canceling, demonization, or are our hearts, are we yearning and moving towards forgiveness, grace, gentleness, and restored fellowship? That's the heart question. And we want to acknowledge harm done. That's a first tripod. We're called to restore to forgiveness. That's the second one. And lastly, uh, we have to make it personal. Now stay with me. I've done online for a while and I know that Around this time, this is where some people log off and you're tempted to pause or, you know, and, 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 but, so, but just stay with me for these next few minutes because it's very important. Because so far, um, this third point is something that's going to tie everything together because the way that I've sort of taught this passage, <coughs> it almost feels like virtue seeking. We desire justice, so we should be just. And we desire forgiveness, so we should forgive. Um, but that's not the point. And, and, and if you walk away from that as the point, then I think something huge would be missing. And so how do we make it personal? What does that mean? Notice what the Lord says to Ananias. And the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel, um, describing Saul, of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Um, notice the contrast. It's a beautiful contrast. In the beginning of the passage, Saul is going to destroy the church. 
And, and Jesus over here is alluding that this person would lay down his life and eventually suffer and die for the church. But notice not only the contrast, but the similarity with the beginning of the passage. Jesus identifies with the church and he says, why are you persecuting me? And in the same way, notice what Jesus says here at the end when describing the life of Saul. Notice Jesus does not say that he will suffer for the sake of the church. Jesus makes it personal. He says that Saul will suffer for my name. What would motivate and drive Paul to love the church and serve the church? It was because of the name of Jesus. It was because of Jesus. Um, Paul was driven to please him. In Galatians 1.10, Paul would describe his outlook with these words. And, and this is a book where Paul is uh, calling out um, sins within that church and also offering forgiveness, exactly what we're talking about. And in Galatians 1.10, Paul would say, for, I am not seeking the, for am I now seeking the approval of man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And what Saul is saying is that the only approval that I am seeking is Jesus Christ. Uh, when I was a high school um, and I entered, um, I went to La Cunada High and I was um, a freshman. I joined the volleyball team. And, and to my surprise, as I started playing volleyball, I, I was placed on the JV team as a freshman, which was a huge honor. Um, the JV team was <coughs> usually <coughs> for sophomores and um, uh, for juniors. And towards the end of my freshman team, I was moved to actually the varsity team, which was a huge honor. And <coughs> I remember um, when I was at school and I, I was announced that I'd be on the varsity team, um, that people in the school came to congratulate me. Um, and, and I remember being filled with joy, except um, there's only one thing that was sort of set in my heart. My parents never were able to watch um, a volleyball game that I played in. Um, they were immigrants, and, and so they were always working or going to church, right? Um, and, and so, um, I, but I just remember this one instance I was practicing as a freshman, and because I was a freshman, I couldn't drive. And so after practice, usually my parents would pick me up. And at the end of practice, near the end of practice, we would scrimmage. And um, the door opened, and I remember my father coming to sit down um, in the bleachers. And I still remember what he was wearing. It was raining outside, and he was wearing a trench coat, and he was sitting down. It's so funny. Um, I can't remember any games, but I remember this practice so clearly. And I, he's sitting down there, and all of a sudden I notice he's going to watch me. And, and me, um, w what I did was I just turned it up. It was practice, but if you were to look at my heart, I was playing for the CIF championship. I was slamming balls. I was hustling. I was jumping. I was doing everything possible. Um, why was I doing all of that? Why was I just going crazy where my teammates were like, Jason, just calm down. This is the end of practice. But to me, I don't know if I have ever played harder in my life. And the reason is because I loved my dad and I wanted him to see what I was doing. I wanted to please him. And in the same way, what Jesus is getting at to Ananias, what Paul later on describes 
And the reason why Paul is able to love the church as broken as she is and serve the church and keep a tender hearted towards the church, as hard as that is, is that Jesus' sights, um, Paul's sights are fixed on Jesus. He wants to please Jesus. He's doing this for his name. Now, why is that the case? It's because Saul knew back here in Acts 9, when Jesus first welcomed Saul, loved Saul, pursued Saul, and died for him. And Saul, in turn, wanted nothing more in his life than to please Jesus. Friends, it has to be personal for us. If you are a Christian, Jesus has done the same for you. Today, isn't it true that there is ugliness within your heart and my heart? I know that's true. And yet we come this Sunday and Jesus calls us beautiful. Don't we know that Jesus should cancel us? Don't we suffer from repeated sins over and over again? And yet Jesus says and tells us and assures us that he will never leave you or forsake you, friends. Jesus loves you. He died for you. He rose for you. He prays for you. He will never leave you. For those of us where it's hard for us to be courageous, hard for us to stand up for justice, we feel like cowards, we could go to him and ask for his strength, and he'll listen to us. For those of us where forgiveness is hard, and frankly, we know we can't forgive on our own strength. We, we feel the bitterness seeping in. Let us turn to him in prayers and confess our need. And he meets us. Like Paul, many of us will go through disappointing and difficult seasons in the life of the church. And there will be seasons where not only you will disappoint others, but you will be disappointing to others. And we, were, we will want to run away from the church, but let's make it personal. Jesus loves you and desires to speak to you. Jesus wants to bless you. Jesus wants you to know that you are an object of his affection, that he has redeemed you and he watches over you. And though we may have stopped praying, he never stops interceding for you. And how do we find that love time and time again? How do we park ourselves in that gospel where we are assured of that? Friends, it's through the church, through the worship of the church as we come and gather. We're assured of his love. Through the fellowship of the church where we experience his love as we get to know other people. Through serving the church where we are used by God to help transform lives by his grace. Let me conclude as we just sort of think about these three tripods and why we do what we do, knowing that Jesus loves justice and loves forgiveness and that we do these things because we love him. Let me conclude with Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was um, someone who, a German pastor, he was um, a pastor during the Nazi regime, and he was one, uh, he was, uh, rather than um, uh, 
settle to become sort of a state church, like many churches were in Germany during that time. He resisted the Nazi regime and ended up in prison. And in prison, uh, he remained a tender-hearted towards the church. And if you look at his writings, he always loved the church, though it must have been harmful. And he writes this benediction from prison. And, and may it be a prayer for us all as we um, continue to love the church and, and, and continue to walk these tricky waters. And he writes, May God in his mercy lead us through these times. But above all, may he lead us to himself. I want to thank you for inviting me and if I could just pray for us here. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for this time. We come and pray that you would bless and guide us. We come and pray for much wisdom. We pray for tenderness and strength. We come and pray that we would do things out of a love for Jesus and that we would mot be motivated out of that deep desire. We come and pray for wisdom and guidance. I come and pray for healing for many. And Lord, would you meet us? Would you guide us to yourself? In Jesus' name, amen.